The inaugural address of the Reverend Dr. Joseph Ruggles Wilson as the Professor of Pastoral and Evangelistic Theology and Sacred Rhetoric at Columbia Theological Seminary, originally published in the Southern Presbyterian Review, Volume 22, Number 3, July 1871. The following editor's note preface the article. On the 23rd of May, 1871, the Reverend Joseph R. Wilson was duly inaugurated as Professor of Pastoral and Evangelistic Theology and Sacred Rhetoric in the Theological Seminary at Columbia, South Carolina, by the General Assembly and Session at Huntsville, Alabama. The moderator, the Reverend William Swan Plummer, presided and conducted the exercises. Dr. Wilson read aloud and subscribed the covenant required by the Constitution of the Seminary, the Reverend Thomas E. Peck, professor in Union Theological Seminary, gave the charge to the professor, and Dr. Wilson then delivered his inaugural address. May 23, 1871 Moderator and members of the General Assembly and this respected audience, if any apology were needed for the perpetuation of the professorship I have been elected to occupy in your theological seminary, it might be found alone in the power of the pulpit and the corresponding necessity that must constantly exist for training men to wield this power with all possible efficiency. It would be strange indeed. It would be criminal. It would be the crime of suicide, were the church, into whose hands this great agency for good has been committed, to neglect its importance. It is her articulate breath. It constitutes, to an essential degree, her very life. Without it, she can have no organization, and therefore no proper recognition among men. She must maintain, she must cherish, she must magnify the pulpit, if she would not jeopard her whole influence over the world and deny her stewardship of the gospel mysteries. First, I call attention, first of all, to the strongly suggestive fact that preaching is an institution ordained of God. The Almighty is its author. Its author, however, not in the ordinary sense in which we style him the author of all things, but in that higher and more special sense in which we distinctively denominate him the author of human redemption. The pulpit occupies a conspicuous place in the plan of saving grace. This place, namely, it is the point where, under the direction of the Holy Ghost, the theology of the Scriptures is applied to the hearts and consciences of men. Redeeming love had two leading objects in view. First, the devising of a way for procuring the recovery of mankind from the ruin of the fall, and second, the construction of a method for bringing the knowledge of that way home to the thoughts and desires of the race. In other words, it involved the necessity of sending a Savior and required the proclamation of his sufficiency to a dying world. It demanded the cross and heralds of the cross. It saw the equal indispensableness of Christ's death and of making that death ever more available to those for whom it was designed. It is true that the entire way of salvation is mapped out in the inspired scriptures, and therein may thoughtful and prayerful men discover it to their joy. It is true also that the third person of the Trinity is he whose essential office it is to enlighten the souls of men in the pursuit and obtainment of Bible truth. But, unless God had determined to set apart persons whose duty it should be to explain the word of life, 
to keep its lessons always fresh before the attention of the world, and to enforce by the living voice its sanctions, unless too the Holy Ghost were enabled, himself unseen, to employ visible instruments for the discharge of his functions of entreaty, of illumination, and of actual regeneration, it is certain that the scriptures themselves would soon have ceased to benefit sinners, and that the Spirit would soon have departed from the world with his work undone. Hence it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, a method, we are told, which his own wisdom devised for meeting all the exigencies of a case that was otherwise helpless. There was among the ancient heathen, there is among men everywhere now, a Sophia Tace Fusios, a wisdom about natural things, i.e. philosophy. But there is a wisdom quite different from this, and far above it, a Sophia tu Theu, a wisdom about God, i.e. divinity. And it is divinity which God would have men learn, and which he would have them learn through the teachings of men like themselves, in the circumstances the only available way, it would seem. The treasure must be deposited in earthen vessels, and thence be drawn for the spiritual enrichment of mankind. It was not enough that angels occasionally spake for God. It was not enough that inspired prophets and apostles delivered the messages of divine mercy and its alternative wrath. It was not enough that Jehovah himself uttered his voice from the heavens at fitting times. It was not enough that the incarnate Lord preached the good news of eternal life during the period of his mission on earth. Nor is it enough that the adorable Spirit has his abode in the church for the guidance of bewildered souls into the ark of safety. Another agency was additionally demanded. Those men, who have themselves tasted of the powers of the world to come, who have themselves become partakers of the grace of pardon, who have themselves known what it is to have Christ in them the hope of glory, and who have themselves experienced the toils and trials and triumphs of a believer's good estate, a suitable and chosen number of these must be ordained to go through all the world, having their tongues fired with zeal, their hearts melted with sympathy, and their words winged by a love similar to God's own, to proclaim what even angels could not so well authenticate, and what spirits from the dead could not so effectively set forth. In this fact, then, that God has selected men, weak, erring in themselves nothing, for the work of the gospel ministry, we discover the fundamental ground of pulpit power. It is his power. It is, if I may so speak, a muscle in the arm of divine omnipotence. It is God's specifically chosen instrumentality for the accomplishment of an end which is dearer to him than any other. And because it is so dear, an end for securing which is employing the best, i.e. the most effective method. Granted that he might have used other and different means for obtaining the fruits of his son's sacrificial atonement, we need not speculate about possibilities. This he has resolved to use. And so, accepting it as a matter of indisputable fact, we are at liberty to conclude that it is mighty with the informed energy of his might. Hence, no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron, that old and in its time indispensable priesthood, of which the great brother of the scarcely greater Moses was the official head, was unquestionably of divine ordination, and as such was so interwoven with the history and the uses of the Old Testament dispensation as to constitute its principal feature, 
its essential safeguard, and a large proportion of its crowning glory. I need not trace the proofs of this, seeing that they are open to anyone who is willing to glance ever so hastily over the earlier scriptures. Nor have we now to consider the grounds of the divine choice in the case of Aaron and his successors. Those grounds are indeed nowhere mentioned. God's own unexplained election contains the ultimate and only assignable reason for the conspicuous distinction conferred upon that illustrious family. But this consideration makes it the plainer that the Lord wished his people to regard him and him alone as the source of an office whose dignity should never be disputed and whose functions could never be disallowed without entailing untold disaster upon the world. It was an office which, all were to see, partook of his moral power as truly as it shone with the exhibition of his wisdom and grace. Who, indeed, can avoid such a conclusion when he reflects upon the posture of that bygone priesthood so central, so influential, so commanding, so divinely guarded as it was, even typifying as it did, the place which our Lord himself was to occupy as the high priest over all at the very altar of human redemption. That old dispensation has indeed, as to its forms, passed away, but its principles remain. There is a priesthood still, not such as the papists claim, nor such as formalists of other names contend for, but a spiritual priesthood, consisting of God's true people, who are specifically so entitled and especially of those who, as the leading officers of the elect ones, are clothed with the duty of guiding their devotions, of instructing their faith, of tending their spiritual walk, and of speaking to the world at large the things of a common salvation. This ministering order of men now constitutes the most important external element in the religion which is from heaven, as did that ancient priesthood in its departed day and is now even a more important element than then it was, inasmuch as it is the final development of the great idea of the ministerial office, the fruit of which that was the imperfect flower. As in nature we have first the dawn, then the rising sun, and then the meridian effulgence, so in the revelation of God's will touching the matter we have now in hand, first the typical economy of Moses, then the more evangelical prophets, then the coming of the Lord himself and the bright day of gospel fullness, who, having taught the way of life in its clearness, and having finished the work he came to execute, went up to enter upon the glory which he had temporarily left, but who, before he ascended, gave an evangelical ministry to the church, some to be prophets and apostles who have left no successors, and some to be evangelists, pastors, and teachers, who should remain to the end of time for the perfecting of saints and for the edifying of the body of Christ, upon whose hearts he dropped these potential and memorable words, quote, Go ye and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you alway, even until the end of the world, end quote. Our gospel ministry is, then, of divine authority in the most emphatic meaning of that phrase. If it possess any power, it possesses his whose power is all-pervasive and irresistible. Second, in the second place, I remark that the actual power of the pulpit, its practical efficiency, 
is displayed in the great themes it is designed to impress upon the attention and urge upon the belief of mankind. What these themes are, I need not stop to tell in exhaustive detail. The preacher is appointed to assert the helpless sinfulness of man, to proclaim that Christ's death upon the cross is the only satisfaction for man's sin, to unfold the doctrine of justification by faith in the Son of God, to explain the universal necessity of the heart's new creation by the Holy Ghost, to exhibit the connection that subsists between true belief and personal holiness, to declare the Almighty's eternal hatred against all iniquity, his love towards the guilty, and the need of an ascended Savior's constant intercession, such as that familiar outline of truth which, when spread out, includes the entire scope of the preacher's charge as a herald of the gospel. There are many minor and subordinate topics which it is his office to unfold and to enforce. The whole range of morality comes under his purview, and each point of duty that pertains to the complete circle of men's relations and responsibility he is to touch, to illumine, and to enjoin. But chiefly is it his business to direct souls condemned to everlasting death to him who redeems them unto everlasting life, and having effectively done this, to exhibit to such as shall have been induced to embrace the offered salvation the divine method which is furthermore ordained for their growth in grace, for their progressive walk in those upleading paths of holiness that terminate amid the perfection and rewards of heaven. The pulpit deals with human conscience and arouses it to healthy action, with human will, and fixes its purposes upon the highest ends of being, with human motives, and persuades these to do their noblest office, with human wants, and shows where alone they can be met, with human bereavements, and exhibits their only solace, with human existence altogether, both as it relates to time and eternity, and reveals its true worth, its real dignity, and its sublime meaning. In short, the preacher is the chosen instrument whose commission it is to bring human souls into direct contact with God and kindle them with desires after the divine likeness whose surpassing beauty they shall have come to admire and to love. Now what a tremendous power rises to view out of all this. It was appointed to change the customs of the Jews, to bury forever their ceremonial rites, and to lead them from their pride in Moses to the humility of Christ. And although it was no easy matter to divorce them from that worship upon which, as they fancied, were entailed all the things of dearest regard to mankind, yet the preaching of the cross was ordained to do even this, and measurably succeeded. It was appointed also to overturn the superstitions of the heathen, as well as to displace the ceremonial traditions of the Hebrews. The wisdom of the philosophic Greeks must cover its face before it, the idolatry of the common people must stoop to it, and the profane customs of men everywhere must yield under the weight of it. The preaching of gospel truth is ordained to despoil the race of whatsoever the natural affections are most set upon and glory in, to pull self up by the roots, to unman the carnal, to debase the principle of worldliness, and to make it appear that only the service of God is noble and brave, to rust the sword of war, to dispirit every false but specious virtue, and to annihilate whatsoever, independently of God's glory, is esteemed worthy and comely among mankind, to exchange conquest for suffering, 
the increase of reputation for self-sacrifice, and the natural sentiment of pleasure for the pursuit of true happiness. It is not indeed pretended that all this has been accomplished to its fullest extent, else would there be no need of preachers at present or in times to come. Nor is it assumed that, to the degree it has been achieved, the success of preaching is due to the potency of man's efforts, however holy and earnest and eloquent he may have proved himself in handling his work. Here is manifestly God's sufficiency exerting itself, but exerting itself through the medium of human agency. And because it does so, here is an agency the most mighty that can be conceived, nothing in itself but rendered resistless by reason of that informing, controlling, and directing omnipotence which dwells in this, its chosen arm of power. This world is governed, men are potentially moved, not by mere machinery, whether you call it statesmanship or conventional usage or time-honored custom or social fashion, but by great thoughts, by diffusing the knowledge of substantial and undying truths, by bringing to bear upon the general mind the operation of eternal principles of conduct. To these men yield more promptly than many have been accustomed to suppose, who look only at the surface of the world's life. You have only to examine the causes which effectuated those upheavals of society that have occurred from time to time to be convinced of what I am saying. You have only to look, a familiar example, to the era of the Reformation, to be persuaded of the revolutionary, the transforming efficacy of those gospel realities, which needed only to be brought to the view of mankind in the publication of an almost forgotten gospel, in order to produce an entire change in the current of human history. Those tremendous verities to which the reformers pointed had been hidden, not lost, smothered, not destroyed, and when the superincumbent mass of superstition was lifted off, they sprang into a fresh life which hundreds of succeeding years have served only to render stronger and more energetic, until now they govern the best portion of the entire world. It has always been, it is at present, because the pulpit is the arena where great thoughts had and have their seat, thoughts that are big enough to fill the soul, that penetrate the innermost man, and that move the deepest passions, that it is seen to possess a power of the lordliest description. What is truer than the existence and prevalence of sin, than the condemnation which is imminent over the head of universal guilt, than the wrath of a justly angry God, and what is better calculated to awaken, alarm, stir to resolution, lead to action? What, too, is truer than the need of repentance, the necessity for supernatural influence and the production of saving faith, the love of God in receiving the worst of men into his restored favor, the whole round of evangelistic doctrine, as it affects in a hundred ways the temporal and eternal welfare of mankind, well, here is the arsenal of the preacher's weapons. Here he finds material for his holy warfare against every species of human woe and for imparting triumph to every effort for obtaining the whole wealth of human weal. His power is in his theme. He is the instrument of conversion above all other moral agents who are appointed in the providence of God to control the hearts of men. He rises the highest and achieves the most who best understands how to wield the truth as it is in Jesus, 
The able minister of the New Testament is the principal mover and molder of the society amid which he dwells and labors. Third, a third illustration of the power of the gospel pulpit is found in the fact that it is universally acknowledged as a power. There was a day when the preaching of God's word was forced to fight its way into the ranks of those institutions which sway mankind. It still has to do so in countries where Christianity is being for the first time introduced. When the apostles, rising out of their obscure condition, left their nets to become religious leaders and were themselves left by their Lord at his ascension to proclaim his kingdom without visible help, they met with an opposition which would have appalled men less resolved to die for the faith that was in them. But that opposition was due to the very fact of their power as public witnesses for Christ. It was because their preaching was turning the world upside down that they were persecuted to death. So indeed, ever since, the antagonism that, time and again, men have shown towards the pulpit has been a far-sounding recognition of its claim to a place among the potencies of earth. Princes, communities, commonwealths have dreaded it because they felt that it was a power to be dreaded. Had the pulpit been weak, it would not have come under the frown or been assailed by the sword of angry authority. Its influence over the minds of men has been at once its source of danger and its source of triumph. In the present day, however, there is, in all civilized countries, a universal acknowledgment of preaching as a power, at the same time beneficent and controlling. Laws are enacted to protect its free exercise. Millions voluntarily wait upon it to receive its instructions. And over a large portion of the world, there is not a family, there is scarcely a heart, that does not confess its moral sovereignty. It has, under the directing hand of God, made all Protestant countries what they are. It has raised all civilization to the position it now occupies. Whilst, indeed, it has not been enabled to lay an arresting hand upon all wickedness, it has lifted up a standard around which all goodness has rallied, and, in all surviving institution, it is destined to work many a righteous revolution in days to come, which shall more and more rapidly hasten the dawn of millennial glory. An acknowledged power like this is greater than it could be if it were yet to win its way into public favor. The preacher is patiently listened to as an authoritative herald of salvation, whose speech is weighty because it seems to proceed from a spiritual throne, and whose lessons are entertained because they come clothed with the species of divinity, and he has only to be true to his master and to his message in order to be honored and followed. So true is this, that the preacher is now in danger from the very popularity of his calling. His pride is apt to be fired by witnessing the hundreds who wait upon his ministry, by beholding the effect of his public deliverances upon the general mind, and by seeing the fruits of converting grace as the result of his labors. He is constrained, almost more than ever, to keep himself in constant recollection of the fact that, after all, he is but the mouthpiece of another, that other being the Lord of glory, that none of his sufficiency is of himself, and that whatsoever visible agency he exerts upon the hearts of his fellow men for their temporal and eternal welfare is an agency whose might resides in an invisible arm that is almighty, and that graciously and mysteriously works through his nothingness to the pulling down of Satan's strongholds. Accordingly, 
the companies of preachers who have gone forth from time to time from the schools of divinity, have proved stronger than all military battalions which successful ambition has hurried from conquest to conquest. Had the apostles borne the doctrines they proclaimed upon the points of their swords, as Peter would have done if permitted, and handed down both their spiritual doctrines and their carnal swords to those who have succeeded them, with the injunction to employ both with equal urgency, the world this day would have presented a far different scene from that which it actually presents. The design of the preacher is to change human hearts, not human governments, to bestow life, not to take it away, to ransom, not to enslave. They have a warfare to wage, not indeed with carnal weapons, but with such as are mighty through God for the pulling down of strongholds. Their arms and their doctrine are the same. Others may extend opinion by the strength of human reason and by the insinuating graces of mere eloquence, but true preaching, that which has always prevailed and still prevails, has derived and can derive no efficiency from the enticing words of man's wisdom. It conquers by carrying in its published truth, a truth too distasteful to the world, the demonstration of the Spirit. Its powers are those of the world to come, are supernatural, and no wonder its triumphs have been many and constant over all the force and wit of earth. I have not now time to record those triumphs. They are known to all. From the memorable hour when three thousand hearts melted underneath the pervasive fire of Peter's plain declarations of gospel doctrine at Pentecost, until now, that doctrine has spread from the lips of its heralds over a large portion of the world against all opposition and despite all efforts to stay its progress. In less than twenty years after the ascension of our Lord, there was not a province of the Roman Empire, and scarce any part of the known world, which the early preachers had not penetrated, and wherein they did not leave multitudes of professing believers. And ever since, by precisely the same methods, Christianity has gone from victory to victory upon the breath of pulpit proclamation, so that it has become that acknowledged power before which all other power is compelled to bow its head. Proceeding, then, upon the idea that the preaching office is a special ordination of God and presents itself to the world clothed with power derived immediately from its divine author, it shall be my purpose to impress such of the rising ministry as it shall be my duty to assist in preparing for their great work with the vast importance of the trust that is being committed into their hands, to instruct them as to the nature of the ministerial call, as to the distinguishing peculiarities of the ministerial character, as to the greatness of the ministerial obligations, to make them see the necessity for a warm and augmenting piety, livelier and loftier than that of other men, for a large, liberal, and exact scholarship of such a sort as shall give the sacred desk a more commanding influence than press or platform at the same time that it does not withdraw its occupants in the least from sympathy with the commonest or rudest of their fellow men. For an acquaintance above all with Scripture, at once profoundly learned and deeply experimental, to show them by calling upon the experience of the pulpit in all ages how best they can learn to preach, to expound, to exhort, with God's word as the one source from which to draw the power of every argument, the lesson of every exercise, the urgency of every motive, to unfold to their view the kind and the degrees of that noble oratory 
which they will be expected to employ in exhibiting and enforcing the truths of revelation upon their hearers, to lead them into a discovery of the meaning and importance of the pastoral office as an indispensable auxiliary to the preaching, to explain the duties of catechetical and other methods of religious instruction intended especially for the young, to open up the department of casuistry, and conduct them to a knowledge of such cases of conscience as are most likely to fall to their professional treatment, to traverse with them the whole field of evangelistic labor as distinguished from the locally ministerial, and embracing in its widest extent the entire scope of foreign missionary effort, and to do whatever else may serve to fit the successive classes of candidates for the sacred office they are seeking for a workmanship that shall neither make them ashamed nor detract from the glory of that ever-blessed Master whose servants they are, nor give the Church reason for deploring the day when she founded the theological school which I am at this moment representing. Oh, may the time soon come, whose coming will show to the world many more of pulpits than now we have, occupied by men of God in the highest sense, of zeal apostolic, of intelligence the most masculine, transfused with a love and faith the most energetic and vital, fountains of light, sinners of power, men whose speech fired from heaven shall be felt to be genuine, true, humane, suggestive, pregnant, creative of all good, men who, understanding at once their message and the advanced times for which they have been raised up to wield its various power, shall so stimulate and guide human thought in matters of religion as to swell and direct the undergrowth of forces in the rising race in a manner which will rapidly prepare the way for those abounding future results which are to issue in the speedy dawn of that long-looked-for latter-day glory which alone is able to satisfy the hopes of an expectant church.